0: Michael Ashcroft, the founder of Lord Ashcroft Polls, and this is the Ashcroft in America podcast. Each week until November's presidential election, the Lord Ashcroft Polls team will be visiting the key states to hear from the voters who will decide whether to put Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton in the White House. Our focus groups will look behind the headlines to find out what is going on, where it really matters, in the minds of the American voters. The tour begins next week in Wisconsin. In this first edition, we will look at the candidates, how they got here, and the challenges they each face with the voters they have to convince. We'll also hear what I hope you will agree are two fascinating interviews with two of America's most insightful commentators, Rachel Maddow and Carl Rove welcome to Ashcroft in America and I hope you enjoy the ride
1: Hello, I'm Kevin Colwick, and I'm the director of Lord Ashcroft Polls, and I'm lucky enough to be taking part in this research trip of a lifetime—32 focus groups in seven states in seven weeks. Joining us on the Ashcroft in America team is MSNBC political analyst and Time contributor Elise Jordan, who's going to help us make sense of things on our odyssey. Hello, Elise.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Kevin.
1: Now, with just under two months to go till election day. Um, throughout the summer, the polls have been quite good for Hillary Clinton. She's had quite a comfortable lead. But recently, they seem to have narrowed. Is the race becoming more competitive, do you think?
2: This is an interesting race because you have two candidates with historically high negative ratings. For so much of the summer, Trump was driving his own advisors crazy by constantly making statements that would move the spotlight off of Hillary Clinton and retrain it on his own weaknesses. Since rebuilding his campaign for the second time, and bringing in Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway, Trump has been showing much more discipline. The danger for Trump now is that voters worry he's too unpredictable, and the danger for Clinton is that they fear she's untrustworthy. In recent weeks, when the Clinton email controversy resurfaced, Donald Trump has actually managed to stay quiet and let the negative attention fall on Hillary. That has reminded many undecided voters of their concerns with Hillary Clinton, and her secretive handling of her health issues has only compounded those concerns.
1: We'll see how these things play out over the next few weeks. Rachel Maddow is an award-winning political commentator. Her nightly program, The Rachel Maddow Show, is the highest rated show on MSNBC, Last week, Lord Ashcroft caught up with her at her office in Rockefeller Center. He began by asking how this election differed from others she'd covered.
3: Well, there's a Donald Trump in it, <laughs> which I think is uh, can't be um, overstated in terms of how unusual that is for American politics. We've all been looking for the analogy to explain what Donald Trump might be like from previous politics, and people have drawn analogies from everybody from you know Huey Long, the great you know, populist Louisiana governor to uh, P.T. Barnum, the great showman of uh, of, of circus fame, to uh, Ross Perot, who was an eccentric billionaire who ran uh, a couple of times for president, and had a very big effect on the election, uh, particularly in 1992. Like, we've tried to find somebody who, in American politics who's the same kind of character, and there, there, you can find little slivers, but there isn't somebody like him. And it's very, very, very unusual to have a complete political novice playing politics at the highest level. It's very unusual for the for one of the two major parties to have effectively been toppled. I mean, they, they didn't run a bunch of schmoes against Donald Trump. They ran um, a very deep bench uh, that was... Fairly diverse, had a lot to offer. Senators, governors, people who were favored to win had they run in 2012 and decided not to. In the case of Chris Christie, all of these people who, who, who should have been able to laugh Donald Trump off the stage if you take a traditional political science approach to what he brought to this election, um, and he just he just walked through it almost without effort, and they're just. Everybody thinks there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to politics. He's legitimately new. And so there's a sense of um, not just unpredictability, but there is a sense of, I think, of wonder at how this happened. So much of the punditry is how did we get here? Boy, I was wrong. All People marveling at where we are. But then really nobody does have a basis um, to predict what happens next because we haven't had anything like this. And that you know the root word of news is new (laughs) this is this is new and nobody can tell what's going to happen next and that i think has kept people glued to it um but in terms of foreign foreign interest i don't know i think americans are a lot of americans are a little embarrassed about this election um but i i'm happy that the world sees it as (laughs) sees it as important if not you know just engaging because i think that we're going to need a lot of support when this is over (laughs) But,
0: but for yourself, as yeah. moving on to Hillary a little bit, uh, you're a self-proclaimed liberal. How close or how far is Hillary Clinton from being your ideal candidate?
3: That's interesting. I, I don't, you know, it's um, a good question. I mean, I don't think of her as a liberal. Uh, I don't think of Barack Obama as a liberal either. So conservatives hearing me say that, will be laughing out loud now. We should pause to allow them to collect their thoughts. Um, I think Obama ran basically as a sort of a centrist democrat and he has mostly governed as a centrist democrat if you look just at the issue the biggest domestic policy issue that he tackled during his time in office his first term on on health reform there was no question that there would ever be the liberal option on health reform which would be an nhs or uh, veterans affairs style system for the whole country medicare for all that was never considered seriously at all and The one gesture towards that was an idea of a public option that people would be able to buy into essentially a government administered insurance program Um, and that lasted for about five minutes and it was immediately traded away and they never stood behind it so a liberal wouldn't do that I think he has been sort of a centrist and I expect much of the same. Actually, from Hillary Clinton. I think they're different people. I think they bring different things to the job. I think she, despite her protestations to the contrary, I think that she would be more hawkish and interventionist. I think he's quite. Uh, I think he's 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 ideologically and more importantly psychologically disinclined toward foreign foreign entanglements when it comes to the military, and she doesn't have any such qualms. So I'd expect her to be more hawkish on foreign issues on foreign policy and on the military, but on domestic issues, I think that they will be sort of along a continuum in the same way that he was along a continuum with her husband's administration.
0: And how do you think uh, Donald Trump presidency would be like?
3: It is hard to imagine. I mean, when you do political analysis or when you study political science, it's a very simple formula. You look at similar things in the past, <laughs> try to analyze what variables are different between that example and what we're currently going through and then you extrapolate from past experience. What past experience can we extrapolate from in order to project a Donald Trump presidency? Um, it feels it feels impossible to imagine. Um, not impossible to imagine him winning. I think he's got a 50-50 shot at winning. It's impossible for me to imagine what it would be like how he would govern as a president. Um, I think that There is some stuff that is worrying to me, not because of what he would do, but because of the way that more astute actors would take advantage of what he doesn't know. So on small stuff and big stuff, last night he said, when being questioned about, uh, last night in the uh, commander in chief forum that we had here, he was asked about this, um, his ISIS plan. He'd previously said he had a secret plan to defeat ISIS. And he wasn't gonna tell anybody until he was president even though it could be used now to defeat ISIS. He doesn't want to defeat ISIS now. He wants to keep his plan secret, wait till he's president. Um, Now he says that he would ask his generals for a plan to defeat ISIS. They'd have to come back within 30 days for a plan, and then maybe that would be the plan that he'd use. When it was suggested that, um, you know, his previous criticism of our current military leadership and saying that our generals now are an embarrassment to the country might make them an odd group to go to for a plan on ISIS... He responded last night by saying, well, it would be all new generals when he was president. Wouldn't be the same group, wouldn't The American military is a professional institution in which the leadership does not flop every four years every time we get a new president. The president does not wear a uniform. He doesn't bring a new cadre of military leadership when he takes over. We're not that kind of country. And if he doesn't understand that, there's a question as to whether or not he's qualified to be seeking the presidency. But I also worry that somebody with that level of ignorance about very, very basic fundamental structures of American governance could be taken advantage of by people who really did have nefarious aims for the country. Um, and I worry about that with foreign policy. It's the whole controversy about his love affair with, um, with Putin boils down to his susceptibility to flattery. And people who have a lot of power who are susceptible to flattery will be flattered. And um, if that's kryptonite for him in terms of his good judgment, then um, that's just, that opens us up to vulnerabilities and exploitation that I don't think an American president has ever been subject to, at least in in my lifetime. So I I worry, I don't know what he'd be like, but what he doesn't know makes me worry that um, he could be, his presidency could be a stalking horse for a lot of horses that we can't see right now.
0: And finally, Rachel, and you've been very generous with your time, though you're well known as a commentator with a particular point of view, you also have a reputation for treating people on the other side with civility. I hope so. Do you think that's becoming a rarer quality in politics? And if so, why do you think that is?
3: There, um, I'll say two two things about that briefly. Uh, One is that I think we as, as Americans tend to overestimate the civility of our ancestors. <laughs> like we, we tend to think that we have descended to new lows and it's never been this bad. I mean, there have been times in our history where you know, senators beat one another to the point of death with a cane on the floor of the United States Senate. I mean, we didn't have a civil war in this country. There has been um, you know, rel- you know, unspeakably brash incivility in our politics. Uh, in both the modern era and all the way back to our founding. And so it's it's part of who we are. We're a little bit gross when it comes to our politics. Not to excuse how gross we are this year, but um, we're just like that. And certainly in our in our media, we have a r- bit of a rough and tumble media, uh, more so in my branch of it in cable news than we do in print. But there are rewards for people who are willing to uh, cross boundaries and shock with the way that they talk about um, both the in which we're embedded, but also the candidates. Oh. I, th- there, are, there are nice moments, though. There was there was a one nice moment, which I thought, uh, which I've sort of held onto and referred back to a lot since it happened. It didn't get a lot of attention. But when Hillary Clinton named Tim Kaine to be her running mate, uh, there's a senator from Arizona who's a very conservative senator named Jeff Flake. And Jeff Flake responded to that news almost instantly once Kaine was announced. And he said, uh, it was a tweet, and he said, I'm going to paraphrase it, he said, counting the ways in which I hate Tim Kaine. So far, up to zero. Couldn't happen to a nicer man, a better man, honorable man. I wish him all the best. And maybe that's, maybe that's unfair because Jeff Flake is not a Trump-supporting Republican, and so maybe he's allowed to be civil in a, because he's not part of that fray. But I thought that moment, recognizing that everybody wants you to hate the other guy because he's done the other team, and s- defying that and saying actually as a human being this guy deserves respect um, stuck with me and I feel like I'm sort of holding on to that it's a little golden moment in this campaign and I think that um, there's, there's as much of that as there is ugliness.
0: Well thank you very much indeed Rachel Mad- Maddow and I will finish it by saying that I am at this moment of time restraining myself from jumping up and giving you a big hug. Oh
3: you can give me a hug.
1: Well, that was a beautiful moment, didn't you think? Right, let's have two minutes on Donald Trump and two minutes on Hillary Clinton. We'll start with Hillary. Elise, what is Hillary's pitch to the American people? Is she a change from Obama or is she more of the same?
2: Clinton's campaign was always premised on two biographical points, her resume and her gender. She claims that she's the most experienced candidate ever to run for president. And that's a selling point that Trump has tried to chip away by focusing on her health and, by implication, her age. And it's true that a substantial portion of the population feels that it's time to give a woman a chance to run things. The question is, will those factors be enough to get her over the finish line if American voters find her essentially unlikable? And that's
1: the thing that people often ask about in Britain. Hillary seems to be kind of strong and capable and experienced. Why is it that so many Americans seem to dislike her so much? Why is her favorability rating so low?
2: Presidential politics is a bruising business, and she's been in the ring a very long time, and on some level she bears the scars of doing partisan battle for decades. It's hard to escape the conclusion that misogyny has played some role in her unpopularity. One of the things that a lot of voters really disliked about her as First Lady was that she didn't spend time decorating the East Wing, and she functioned as somewhat of a co-president with Bill Clinton. A generous interpretation of that criticism is that voters had elected Bill Clinton, not Hillary Clinton, to run the country. And of course, the Clintons have always been susceptible to accusations of shadiness. From Whitewater to the Clinton Foundation to email gate, they tend to play fast and loose and in the shadows. And it leaves a lot of room for people to conclude that their actions aren't 100% on the level. Now, you
1: mentioned email gate. This is a story that's been rumbling on now for months. And most people this side of the Atlantic will be aware of it, but not following the twists and turns necessarily. What's that all about? And is it one of those stories that actually makes a difference? Or is it something that if you if you think badly of Hillary, then it confirms everything you already thought? And if you're a supporter, it's just the opposition banging on and on and on about the same thing all the time. Is it actually gonna move any votes?
2: Well, you know, let's go back and explain what this scandal is all about. State Department employees, starting with the Secretary of State at the high end of the ladder, are supposed to use a secure government-issued email service for all their official business. And this is to protect sensitive, sometimes classified material from hackers and other bad actors. But without telling anyone, Hillary Clinton decided to set up her own homebrew email server, and she used that for official communications. And the concern is that she may have exposed classified information to enemies of the state, but politically, it just underscores this idea that the Clintons play by their own rules. And so while a lot of voters think that this email scandal is ridiculous and another example of how the media beats up on Hillary Clinton, there are other voters, including the majority in my home state in Mississippi, the deep south in a very red state, for whom Hillary Clinton can never do anything right. So presidential elections hinge on these undecided voters in swing states for better or worse. And the concern here for the Clinton campaign is that this email scandal still underscores this qualm that people have about her untrustworthiness. And it hurts their ability to say, you can't risk putting the country in Donald Trump's hand because can you risk it with Hillary Clinton's?
1: Now, one of the things that we heard from Hillary last week is this absolutely magnificent statement that Donald Trump's, half of Donald Trump's supporters were a basket of deplorables which I just think is a a marvellous phrase. She said they were racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, and Islamophobic. How's Donald Trump reacting to that?
2: The Trump campaign has really been out there, hammering home that Hillary Clinton holds his supporters in contempt. But, you know, very... Few people actually consider themselves racist, sexist, homophobic, and so on. And people who even really are those things, they don't consider consider themselves that. So, um, people who are certainly aren't going to vote for Hillary Clinton. So, I don't really see where this moves the needle at all in Donald Trump's favor. George W. Bush's two presidential election victories turned Karl Rove into a legend in the world of political strategy. He served as deputy chief of staff and senior advisor in the White House, and he's now a political analyst with Fox News and a columnist for The Wall Street Journal. Last week, the man President Bush called The Architect, among other nicknames, spoke to Lord Ashcroft in a smart but rather noisy New York City hotel. Well, great to be
0: sitting with you, Karl, uh, and an easy one to, uh, to start with for the benefit of our British listeners. How did we end up with the two most unpopular presidential candidates in this year? Well, uh, different reasons. Uh,
4: on the Democratic side, I think it's because their bench has been wiped out in the Obama years. When uh, President Obama came to office, there were 60 Democrats in the Senate. And, uh, there are 46 today. There were um, 240-some-odd members of the House. There are 180-some-odd. There were 30 Democrat governors that are now 19. And so uh, one out of every six Democratic members of our state legislatures, uh, their seats had flipped to the Republicans. And um, so their bench is wiped out. So they, they were left two choices. One choice was Hillary Clinton. So if there is a machine within the Democratic Party, the Clintons have a machine. Uh, they have assiduously courted money and political support uh, for the last 20 some odd years. Uh, on, and, and, but her opponent was, was a backbencher Uh, who attended his first Democratic convention this year. He was elected as mayor of Burlington, Vermont, the largest city in one of our smaller 50 states, ran for governor, was defeated, got elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, served several terms, is now in his third term in the U.S. Senate. And in each one of those elections, he either defeated or was defeated by a Democrat because he always ran as an independent, self-described Democratic Socialist. So he never attended a Democratic convention, never run as a Democrat, and yet he got 45% of the vote against her, which is astonishing, because he also, there she was doing the things that we expect of presidential candidates, raising money, building an organization, laboriously courting interest groups, spending a year doing all the kinds of things you do in a campaign. He threw together a campaign, almost raised as much money as she did, and never held a single fundraising event. Instead, all he did was tweet out messages or send emails to like-minded democratic socialists, and it uh, goes to show something about the market economy that we even allow left-wing coups to have credit cards. So they were able to give him literally hundreds of millions of dollars without him ever having to have a single fundraising event, which in American politics is just extraordinary. On the Republican side, we had too many candidates. We had 17 And along came a celebrity on June 16th of 2015, came down his escalator, and between that June and the following June, if you add up all the time devoted in the evening news, the three networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, and the news programs on the cables, uh, of the total amount of coverage devoted to the presidential candidates, of whom there are 17 Republicans, four Democrats, 60% of the total coverage is devoted to one guy, Donald J. Trump. And 40% is split with among all the others. Uh, and they maybe didn't say nice things about him, but they always spelled his name right, and that was enough to help propel him to a lead of 44% in our in, on the Republican side. 56% of Republicans voted against him, 44% voted for him, but given our sort of uh, system of state-by-state primaries, that was enough. He's the first Republican nominee since 1976, and the only second Republican nominee to have received the nomination after
0: having gotten less than 50% of the vote. And, and how would you sum up the Trump strategy? Does well, it make sense? And how effective do you think it would prove Well, the Trump enough? the Trump
4: strategy is to say okay, I'm not going to win uh, a significant share even for Republican of the Latino or the African American or the Asian American vote. And so what I'm going to try to do is ratchet up white turnout and get more, more votes from Blue collar, working class, high school educated, non college whites. And that's a strategy. In order to pull it off, I think you need to have a campaign that allows you to talk to those kind of people because if you're a college educated white, the likelihood of you voting is 78%. Turnout among uh, college educated whites is nearly 8 out of every 10. That's in a country in which we're lucky to have 6 out of 10 voting in the presidential election. But a college of non college educated whites turnout is is just barely over, two out of, one out of every two, 53%. So if you're going to jack that turnout up and get more of those people, you need to have an organization that's focused on them and surrounding them with, you know, uh, information and support so that they are not only inclined to be for you, but inclined to turn out. And I'm not certain I see that. We'll see if he can do it by the way he's chosen to do it, which is to say, I'm going to hold rallies in their areas, and I'm going to try and dominate the national coverage, and I'm going to
0: try and be a voice for their angst and their anger uh, and hope that they turn out. Uh, But just going slightly further on that, given his ratings among Hispanic and uh, African-American voters, for Trump to win the White House, he has to turn out a higher percentage of white voters than Romney, who pulled pulled nearly 60% of those white voters in 2012. Do you think that is workable this time around? And is this a sustainable strategy for the Republican Party in years to come as the American electorate becomes increasingly diverse? Yeah. No, it's
4: not durable over the long haul, uh,
0: nor is it the only
4: strategy available. Uh, I come from Texas, which is a deep red state. Texas has, as you might expect, a significantly larger share of its population that's Latino than the rest of the country as a whole. We also have a larger percentage of our population that's African American than the national average, and a larger percentage of the population that is Asian American than the country as a whole. We're also a younger state than the country uh, on average. So Republicans are supposed to be mostly white and a lot older, and more affluent. And we're, ele- we're our state, while it's been rising in, in economic uh, results, is still uh, underneath the national average for income. And yet we're a deep red state, and it's because Republicans routinely get 10%, 12% of the black vote, and routinely get 40%, 40, 40, 45% of the Latino vote. Our Republican governor was elected with 50% of the Latino vote. And, uh, and when Bush ran for reelection as governor of Texas in 1898, which is the year we took over everything in Texas, we have 20 state, 28 statewide elected officials in Texas, and a minority of our ticket were white men. The majority of our ticket were blacks, Latinos, and women. And uh, so the Republicans can can carry this message to all kinds of diverse communities if they care to, if they have confidence in their principles. So I don't think it it needs to be a... It's not durable for the long term. Is it durable enough for this election? Maybe, for one reason and one reason only, which is every eight years after a party has controlled the White House uh, for two terms, there is a natural and to some degrees inexplicable desire for the dramatic change and in the modern era we've had eight such points and seven times the party out of power took the White House.
0: What would be worse for the Republicans? Trump to be trounced or Trump to win?
4: I think it all depends on the outcome. If, if Trump wins and turns out to be a terrible president then, it's, then that's the worst outcome for the party. If Trump loses and she turns to, turns out to be what, what I think she's going to be a dreadful president the Republicans will take control of the Senate by a wide margin in 2018, with a bunch of red state Democrats up for election states like West Virginia, and Missouri, and uh, North Dakota, and, uh, and, and purple states like Florida and Ohio, and add to their number of governorships and come roaring into 2020, potentially with the ability to make for a one-term president.
0: Well, recently, the Republicans have been good at keeping control, as you just mentioned, right. the Congress, while the Democrats have held on to the White House. And why do you think that is? And or is it because Barack Obama is unusually attractive presidential candidate? Or is it something deeper?
4: Well, I think it is. I think it's we overemphasize the deeper things. The Democrats like to say demography is destiny, and so because he is the got the coalition of the ascendant, you know, young people, blacks, browns, uh, that that college-educated, particularly those with advanced degrees, he represented the future. I think he represented two things. One is. In 2008, and I say this as somebody who reveres George W. Bush and is grateful to be a member of his administration for seven years, but people wanted to change. They were tired of the war. We've come to that inflection point, eight years of Republicans. We need something different. And along came this young, attractive, articulate African-American who was an inspirational figure. People could say, you know, it would be good for our country to elect him. It would say something about the long journey that we have made, and wouldn't be a wonderful thing for our country. And he fed on that by, by saying things like, we're not red states and blue states, but we're the United States. And this kind of sense of, you know, he is an aspirational figure who will bring us together was powerful. Now, by 2012, they would learned something different about him, that he was brittle and uh, uh, narcissistic and, uh, you know, was was the, just the opposite of that, of that uniting figure that he had portrayed himself as in 2008. And eight. So he could have been defeated, and that was just that. That was a, a bad campaign with a really admirable person who couldn't share who he was. American people want to know who their president is, and Mitt Romney, who, who has so many admirable personal qualities about him, um, just couldn't share who he was.
0: Well, obviously, the final polls will have a. Significant sway and effect, but at this point in time, Karl Rove, who will be your next United States president?
4: Well, if I were if I were having to bet, I'd say that she's you know got the upper hand, uh, particularly since she's got the well-organized ground game in those battleground states. What's interesting is he could he could win, no doubt about it, but he could also lose by having a by getting a better percentage of the popular vote than Mitt Romney did. But because of the weakness in these battleground states, lack of organization, he could he could he could do better in the popular vote nationwide, and do less well in the electoral college because he has not focused on those battleground states. So um, he's the underdog, still has a shot. Debates are going to matter, maybe not as much as we think. There's only been in the modern era only one set of debates that appreciably changed the polling numbers: 1984, after the first debate, where. Uh, President Reagan looked a little confused and out of it. He dropped eight points in the polls and then came back in that second debate with a spectacular line that he was not going to use his opponent's relative youth and inexperience as an issue in the campaign, which brought guffaws even from Walter Mondale. That sort of reestablished people say, oh, he's, he's okay. And he popped back up. Other than that, the debates have simply seemed to reinforce the impressions that people have arrived at before the debates begin, which is why probably the most important time absent some huge gross error in the debates. The most important time is the time between now and the twenty sixth of September, which is the last you know the last phase during which people get to form impressions going into those debates.
0: Carl, thank you very much indeed for uh, talking to the British uh, audience. Well, thank, thank you very thanks much. Thanks for having me.
1: We had two minutes on Hillary. I don't know whether it really was two minutes. You, uh,
2: yeah, if, <laughs> probably it's a You can longer. write and tell us.
1: Um, meanwhile, let's do Donald Trump. Um, Elise, in the primaries, do you think Republican voters were voting for the candidate they thought was most likely to win in November? Or was that secondary for them?
2: The joke with Republican Beltway operatives has always been that the base is ideologically at odds with the party. This year, I think that the Republican base got the joke and they saw revenge. They saw a transactional political class and they responded to Trump accordingly. And I think that winning in November has really always been secondary to defeating the Washington establishment.
1: Now we're on to the general election. What is his pitch to the voters at large? Has his message changed since the primaries, do you think?
2: Trump hasn't morphed into a general election candidate, and he's been sticking to the message that propelled him to the top in the Republican primary. His big picture selling point is that Americans for too long have accepted the failings of government without even trying to change it, that we are told by politicians to ignore our common sense and listen to them because they know better.
1: And traditionally, although it's more complex and nuanced than this, election campaigns usually try to keep the base on board while trying to reach out to undecided voters who might be more moderate and tempted maybe to vote for the other side. Is Donald Trump trying something completely different?
2: It's really difficult to say how much of Trump's approach has been strategy and how much reflects a simple lack of discipline. He's been staying more on script over the past few weeks, so the question for Trump will be if he can avoid damaging distractions like his racially charged attacks on judges or misogynistic attacks on female journalists.
1: So in a nutshell, between now and November, what does Hillary Clinton have to do And what does Donald Trump have to do?
2: Hillary Clinton needs to be honest, and Donald Trump needs to be disciplined. They need to convince voters that they don't deserve the reputations they've earned over many months and years of operating in the public eye, which is why the next two months will be very interesting indeed. That's nearly all for Ashcroft in America this week, except to say we'd love to hear from you. Tweet us with your comments, questions, thoughts using the hashtag Ashcroft in America.
1: In particular, we'd like your ideas for questions we should ask our focus groups, and especially for what we're going to call the projective technique of the week. That is, unusual questions like, if Donald Trump were a cartoon character, who would he be? If Hillary Clinton had a free Friday night to herself, what would she do? It's not an entirely frivolous exercise. Questions like this often reveal something deeper about the way voters see things, as well as sometimes being quite funny. Tweet with the hashtag Ashcroft in America and we could put your suggestions to the great American public. Don't forget, all our research is published at lordashcroftpolls.com. Thanks for listening to Ashcroft in America. We'll see you next week in Green Bay, Wisconsin.